847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, I wanted to uh, focus a bit on music for television um, in two different segments. Uh, The first segment uh, will be about music for one of my favorite television series, while the second segment will be uh, an interview with my friend Mike Hagen and the TV music that he discovered at a young age uh, that made him a soundtrack fan. So the first segment uh, is all about the 1978 television series Battlestar Galactica, and it's music composed by Stu Phillips, which is a longtime favorite of mine. Um, so this is not about the, the long-running reboot of the show from the early 2000s, uh, which is probably the version that many people now are familiar with. It uh, ran on the Sci-Fi Channel, um, and uh, it ran for at least three or four seasons, I think. Um, but uh, no, my focus and, and a lot of my fondness is for the original short-lived uh, Battlestar Galactica, which was an hour-long, um, epically ambitious and expensive science fiction series that ran on ABC during 1978 and survived only one season, unfortunately. Uh, it was produced by Glenn A. Larson, um, who also wrote many of the episodes. He developed the show. And uh, he was also responsible for um, additional shows like uh, Night Rider and The Fall Guy and then another favorite of mine, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, uh, which started uh, the year after Battlestar Galactica. Um, now, the, the Battlestar Galactica pilot episode, um, it was aired as a three-part miniseries, um, and then later it actually wound up being recut and released theatrically, uh, which helped recoup some of the costs for ABC. Um, and following a lot of fan outcry over its uh, abrupt cancellation, ABC attempted to resurrect the show um, with a spinoff, which unfortunately was both uh, cheaply made and poorly received. Uh, but throughout all of this, uh, Stu Phillips, uh, his music is among the best remembered aspects of the show, um, being a rich, melodic, and sweeping orchestral score. Um, it's brimming with multiple themes and motifs. Uh, This was, of course, at a time when science fiction on both the big and the small screen was benefiting uh, from the tsunami, (laughs) the musical tsunami, I guess, created by the earth-shattering arrival of Star Wars in 1977, uh, specifically John Williams' music. Um, But this show was among uh, many professional collaborations between uh, Stu Phillips and producer uh, Glenn Larson. Uh, They they collaborated on uh, those aforementioned series, um, which means, of course, that you can thank Stu Phillips for that uh, insanely catchy and now often sampled main theme for Knight Rider. Um, and uh, I guess we could also thank Glenn Larson for David Hasselhoff. Uh, I mean that sarcastically. But uh, with Battlestar Galactica, um, uh, Larson asked for and he got an operatic scaled score from the classically trained um, Stu Phillips, um, who himself had a background that was really varied. Um, his Phillips background spanned 
um, a number of uh, genres and careers. He um, he arranged music for nightclubs. He played cocktail piano um, in in clubs. He was an A and R guy and produced albums for Colpix Records, um, and also provided music uh, for shows such uh, previous to this, such as the Donna Reed Show and the Monkees and the Six Million Dollar Man. And he also provided music for the infamous Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, uh, written by Roger Ebert. Uh, one of those movies that you know w- was kind of reviled, but has since become sort of a, a cult, uh, a cult favorite. Um, but for what it's worth, um, Battlestar Galactica really allowed Phillips to craft this grand musical canvas across its one lone season, um, with the pilot score being the foundation for most of the thematic material that recurred throughout the subsequent episodes that he would revisit. And to make another analogy with Star Wars, it was it would basically be like, you know, how the, the, the original 77 Star Wars Williams composed Luke's theme and the Rebel Fanfare and Princess Leia's theme and the Force theme. And then in subsequent, you know, installments of that series, he would add new themes, but he would still be revisiting those original themes and different you know, combinations and, and different variations. The same sort of thing is is what Stu Phillips was able to do with uh, with his music for Battlestar Galactica, kind of with the pilot episode score being that jumping off point. Um, but it's also interesting to note, you know, the you know as far as the influences, um, it's uh, it's a, it's music that that derives a lot of its uh, inspirations from such some classical composers such as uh, Dmitri Shostakovich and William Walton, and uh, Arthur Honegger, and then uh, you can also hear some Stravinsky in there with some of these odd meter rhythms and the action, um, but it's very appropriate for a post-Star Wars era of science fiction, um, you know, in terms of what Williams was able to kind of bring to that genre uh, with his score, uh, but it still sounds set apart from it. Um, now, for the premiere episode, um, no less than the Los Angeles Philharmonic was actually hired to perform the music, which was a pretty big deal at the time. Um, apparently, the LA Phil was looking to increase its uh, audience awareness, and uh, when they were asked, no one really expected them to say yes. Um, but uh, but they did actually, you know, agree to to write uh, to perform the music that uh, Stu Phillips had composed. So he was able to make full use of the ninety to one hundred and ten piece orchestra for that premiere. Um, now, even though the remaining episode scores utilized a smaller studio orchestra, um, the LA Phil was always credited uh, thanks to their recording of the main title music and all the bumpers. Um, so with that as the background and on the topic of that main title tune, um, it's an instant winner and it's totally memorable and, and a real highlight from TV themes of the 1970s. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that main title music from Battlestar Galactica.
still amazed that we as the audience got that theme uh, each week plus a big orchestral score to match it. Uh, for me as a kid, it was it was absolutely a big deal. and I was just hypnotized uh, by that music. So that main theme, um, that main title really consists of three main components. Um, right at the outset, uh, there's first this opening fanfare and the horns, and it kind of rises initially and then cascades down. Um, I always felt it could be considered sort of a call to action, um, especially since it's often used in the mini sequences of these fighters being launched from the Galactica. So for anyone unfamiliar with the show, it basically there's these, uh, the Battlestar Galactica is, think of it like an aircraft carrier in space and it has its own fighter jets. Um, and so the main characters, you know, that are the pilots, you know, would launch from the, the, from the launch base. And it was always this exciting sequence um, as they kind of you know, race through this tunnel out um, into uh, open space. And uh, so that fanfare often would be sort of the music that kind of propelled them as they uh, went through the tunnel and launched. The uh, second component of that main theme um, is, is pretty much the main theme uh, from that main title. Um, it's this broad and, and noble uh, melody and, and uh, it mostly characterizes the crew of the Galactica and the ship itself. Um, and then third, there is uh, sort of the bridge portion of the of the theme, uh, which is a, kind of a variation on that main melody, uh, but it has more of a downward turn, less of a triumphant. Um, it I think it's a bit more humble in in nature um, because it sort of is a little bit more reserved. Uh, I think it represents the the religious and the spiritual aspect of the characters on the show, um, th- which it's a, becomes a, a big plot point of the series is is this religion that they have, and it sometimes drives some of the, the storylines of, of certain episodes. But these elements, these musical elements recur throughout the show, and they prove to be amazingly flexible. Um, so there's also a secondary main theme for the show. Uh, which is often heard in the prologue, which is this narrated sequence uh, that sort of spells out the historical landscape, the fictional historical landscape of the of the show. Um, it's a cue called Exploration, um, and it opens with these big crashing chords, uh, which are kind of almost slightly dissonant and ominous, maybe sort of a warning for the dangers that they face, the characters face in outer space. But following this is a... Uh, a theme uh, which uh, it's it's uh, basically a mysterious sort of exotic theme that uh, seems to embody the quest aspect of the series uh, where the crew of the Galactica are searching for this lost tribe of humanity um, which coincidentally happens to be living on a mythical planet called Earth. So this is again sort of tied in with the religious spiritual aspect of the show. Um, but uh, here's a bit of that cue called Exploration.
So from that pilot score, there's also numerous additional themes, uh, both major and minor, uh, meaning both, I guess, important and not as important, but also the scale. Uh, so there is also, there's one for the robotic Cylons. Uh, they're basically the villains of the, of the series, um, and they're uh, sort of chasing the, the, the lead characters across the galaxy, and they're um, led by um, a, another character called the Imperious Leader. It doesn't really have a name. But uh, the, the, the Cylons and the Imperious Leader sort of get their own theme. Um, this one sort of hammers out its malevolence through low brass and, uh, and heavy percussion. Then there are the themes that represent either a specific character, uh, such as Commander Adama, which is, who's played by Lauren Green, or uh, they represent relationships between certain characters, uh, such as the separate love themes for Apollo and Serena, and Starbuck and Cassiopeia, which uh, is something I find interesting um, in the fact that those characters don't get their own individual themes. They get a theme that's tied to their to another character that represents their relationship. And uh, that that love theme for Apollo and Serena, uh, who are characters played by Richard Hatch and um, Jane Seymour, um, eventually that theme just becomes associated with just Apollo um, as he, uh, sorry, spoiler alert, winds up as a single father in the series. And it also represents um, her son, Boxy. Um, so here is some of that, uh, that love theme for Apollo and Serena. Um, this is uh, from the pilot episode still. Um, so here's their love theme. Now, befitting a show which is basically this outer space adventure, uh, there's also a, a great deal of battle music in that pilot as well, which really showcases some orchestral uh, fireworks, uh, some orchestral acrobatics, um, and also some really uh, neat, odd meter um, action music from later in the movie. Um, but these are passages that Phillips, that Stu Phillips would sort of repurpose later um, in subsequent uh, episodes. But uh, here's a little bit of that uh, battle music uh, from a, a cue called End of Atlantia.
Uh, I love that you can also hear in that cue uh, the uh, that little that cascading fanfare from the opening main title sort of makes an appearance as it gets you know, sort of in a new variation in the in the beginning of that cue. But uh, it's a real propulsive uh, cue there, and I think it's a real real standout. Um, but uh, Stu Phillips also got to provide some funky source music uh, for the show. Uh, both this and Buck Rogers in the 25th century, he got to provide some really neat, I mean, I, I find it neat. Um, I guess it's a little dated, but because it, it's sort of the future as, you know, the music of the future as was imagined in the late 70s. So it still has kind of a disco feel to it. Um, but later in the pilot, they go um, to this planet where there's, it's, it's kind of like a, uh, there's a, funky sort of club there but he does a lot of source music for that and some and some other sequences in the movie um, and later in the show as well um but here's a bit of that uh, the source music uh, this is in a cue uh that he called galactic rock So there was a, an album release of the music from the pilot episode, um, and uh, at the 1979 Grammy Awards, uh, Stu Phillips actually did uh, win a Grammy for uh, for basically for best original music for a movie or a special television event, and uh, it absolutely well deserved. And, and hopefully, it softened the blow a little bit because I think by the time he won it, I, I, I don't know if the show was already on the chopping block or had been canceled. Um, but it's nice that he uh, that had that recognition and uh, you know for what he provided the show, which was really the, the musical spirit of the of the show. Um, but uh, you know beyond that, um, he uh, so you know the series at that point you know continued on past the pilot, um, and uh, he you know began to you know obviously reuse some of those thematic elements again for the characters, bring their theme back, um, but. Uh, there were also were instances of the show of episodes being tracked with the previous music. So this was a practice that had been much more common in the early days of television uh, when they weren't budgeting for every episode of a show to have original music. They would, you know, have original music for some episodes and then they would just use those cues again in the other episodes. So that's why you'd hear them a lot. Um, by the late 70s, that was starting to sort of fall out of practice, but it still would get used from time to time if there was a time crunch. Um, there wasn't time to score it or it was a budget issue that they didn't have enough money to actually pay for an orchestra or, you know, to actually perform music, original music for every single episode. So there were, you know, instances of episodes in that for that one season of Battlestar Galactica where there wasn't any original music. It was just cues from earlier, uh, tracked in from earlier shows. But there was an interview that I read with, uh, I found uh, with uh, Stu Phillips from an episode or from an issue of a magazine called Galactic Journal from 1988. And uh, this question had been asked of him about that. And um, 
he uh, Phillips uh, sort of de- he defended the the, the use the, of of the repeated thematic material, and he and this is what he said. He goes, uh, "We had a very generic show with themes for everybody. It was the type of series where it made sense to pull out old music and reuse it because the audience wanted to identify the music with the person on the screen. They don't want to see the imperious leader with some other music. They want to see the imperious leader with his music." Um, but I think the other advantage of this is it gave you, again, sort of that operatic feel of this musical tapestry that you could follow the theme for um, Apollo and Serena or for Starbuck and Cassiopeia or the exploration theme and hear it get used throughout the show in different situations and different variations and different instrumentation. Um, and it just, again, like I said, gave it this rich you know, musical tapestry. Um, but for the episodes where Phillips was able to provide original music, um, he would absolutely bring it with uh, new themes for a new character or a new location. Um, and so he would continually add to and augment that library of themes for, for the show. So by, by the time it wrapped up, you had a real wealth of great material. Um, and this you know, was evident right from the two-part episode that followed the pilot uh, called Lost Planet of the Gods. This was a uh, and again another epic story that uh, brought the characters to this you know uh, mythical another mythical planet uh, called Cobol, uh, which was supposed to be the beginning of, of human life, and he um, wanted to score it partially with a choir. Um, there's also a wedding that takes place uh, between Apollo and Serena, and uh, so he you know asked for and got a, a choral you know a choral element and um, he actually was able to use it in more of the episode because it cost so much to actually hire a choir and add to the uh, orchestra that the studio made sure he used it more than just in a wedding scene. But here is a bit of music from that two-part episode, The Lost Planet of the Gods. This is from the wedding sequence of those characters, uh, Apollo and Serena. You'll hear the choral element uh, right off the bat, um, but what it also consists of is the love theme for Apollo and Serena interwoven with the main theme for the show. Uh, So you'll get that here. Now, Lost Planet of the Gods is not the only two-part episode in the one season of the show. Uh, There are actually a surprising number of two-part episodes uh, for Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Part of the reason is that when ABC greenlit the series, it was not designed to be a weekly show. It actually was just going to be a a run of telemovies, essentially once a month or whatever. They'd have another miniseries or a three-hour event telemovie. 
Um, but after the pilot was done, ABC decided to go ahead and put it into a weekly production, which they were already in the midst of shooting the next couple of episodes or next couple of quote unquote telemovies. And so the, the production staff really had to turn on a dime and turn this into a weekly show. Um, but you'll find, so like if you, if you go through the, the series, there's, uh, at least four two-part episodes and following Lost Planet of the Gods, there was another one called Gun on Ice Planet Zero, which was essentially the show's, uh, attempt to do a Guns of Navarone style, um, uh, story, except set on a planet full of, made up completely of ice. Uh, interestingly, a year and a half or so before Empire Strikes Back did it. Um, uh, but I think it's just pure coincidence. Uh, but the, uh, the characters, uh, have to sort of stop this. They have to take out this giant, massive laser gun before it actually kind of targets the Galactica. But, uh, Stu Phillips did a great job, um, as he did with all these two-part episodes, um, of providing new material and mixing it with his established themes. So this time he, his new theme is really for the environment. So it's not for any of the new characters and like that. Um, he has this theme for the planet, which... Um, really characterizes the harsh environment um, fantastically well. Uh, it has these swirling strings and chimes, which kind of, you know, absolutely give you this sense of this uh, fierce blowing blizzard. Um, and then the melodic line, the strings, um, almost stings like an icy wind uh, the way that it hits you. Uh, so he did, he, Phillips did a great job characterizing the, this ice planet zero uh, in this theme that you'll hear here. Now, in part two of that uh, Gun on Ice Planet Zero, there's actually some really great nerve-jangling suspense and action music at the end when they're planting their charges on the weapon. It's a real uh, neat musical highlight for the season. Uh, but following that, uh, there were a few standalone, standalone episodes that featured new music from Phillips. Uh, the Western-tinged The Lost Warrior. There is also uh, new music for uh, an episode called The Magnificent Warriors, which is kind of a play on The Magnificent Seven. Um, but then there's another set of uh, two-part episodes, the first of which is The Living Legend, uh, which guest stars Lloyd Bridges as this uh, legendary Commander Kane, who they thought had been uh, lost. But he's kind of a rogue. Um, so uh, Stu Phillips introduces two new themes for this two-part episode. He has a theme for Commander Kane, which is sort of this military, militaristic sort of, uh, it's, it's almost a pompous kind of theme, which really, you know, befits his character. And then there's actually a love theme for um, Kane and then the character Cassiopeia, 
who uh, has had a relationship with Starbuck on the show. So she's actually already been, she has a, a love theme with Starbuck, and now there's a, you find out that she had had a relationship previously with this Commander Kane character. So Stu Phillips also provides them with their own love theme, uh, which is interesting because it'll play off against her theme with Starbuck in the episode. And then there's also some great action material towards the end. Uh, but here's a bit of uh, Commander Kane's uh, theme for that two-part episode. So that cue is called Another Battle Star, and you can uh, hear it. It actually it mixes Commander Kane's theme, which is really more of this rising fanfare uh, motif. It's not really a fully long line developed theme, but it mixes it in with uh, a bit of the Cylon material. So it's not that hammering motif, but it has those menacing chords in there, which I thought was interesting. And then for part two, uh, he has some real great development of the Battlestar Galactica main theme and the fanfare um, and some action material uh, for this parachute sequence uh, that uh, is part of the climax uh, for that two-part episode, uh, which you'll hear here in this cue called Airdrop. I think that Q is a, a great example of, again, how flexible his uh, main uh, Galactica theme is, along with that uh, cascading fanfare, because he, he, you know, it's different than what you heard in the Q from the wedding, um, which is sort of more stately. And then here you have it as an action material in this really propulsive Q. It's almost a gallop. Uh, you can almost imagine it for a horse race. Uh, but it's it's such a, a great example of, of Stu Phillips' ability to um, vary his his thematic material just wonderfully and just endlessly uh, for the show. Um, but following this two part, there was another the the last two part um, episode f- uh, for the series. Uh, the, it doesn't close out the series, but it's the last two part episode is War of the Gods, which features some of his strongest material. Um, he brings back the choir, and um, there is a, there are a number of new themes in it. There is this. Uh, new shady character uh, called Count Ibley, and he gets a, a real malevolent, you know, sort of theme. He's not to be trusted. He turns out to be um, 
pretty terrible. Uh, so there's a theme for him. There, he actually gets a, a, a malevolent theme and then kind of a more seductive theme. So he he kind of is almost like a serpent in the Garden of Eden sort of thing and uh, sort of turning people against each other. Um, and uh, so he, he winds up getting several themes associated with him. And there's also these characters which are almost angelic and they're, they come along on the ship of light. So the ship of lights gets its own motif, and then the angelic characters that are in it, um, who feature prominently at the beginning and the end of the two-part episode, they get their own theme, and that's where the choir comes into play. Um, so I wanted to play some of their music uh, for that light ship, and then also their angelic material um, in this cue here, which uh, is called Gotta Get to Heaven. So I think this two-part episode, War of the Gods, features the most amount of new thematic materials since the pilot. Um, so there was those themes I mentioned. There's also a new theme uh, for this uh, strange planet that they find. Um, there's also a, a love theme um, that he develops for uh, the character Count Ibli I mentioned, and then also another character on the show named Sheba. She uh, She's a character who joined like midway. She joined in the the previous two-part episode, The Living Legend, she's actually the daughter of uh, Commander Kane, and Count Ibley actually tries to seduce her. Um, but they have this, uh, Phillips writes this lovely lilting uh, sort of theme for, for several of their scenes, which makes you think like it's, you know, that, that he is to be trusted, that uh, and she starts to sort of fall for him, but he, he turns out to be a really duplicitous character. Um, but the theme that he wrote for, for their scenes is really lovely. So I want to play a little bit of that here. It's, it's from a cue called Garden of Sin, and it starts with these wavering sort of flutes before it gets to this high uh, string line. Thank you. 
Following this two-parter, Stu Phillips was only able to write original music for two more episodes, um, Murder on the Rising Star and the finale, The Hand of God. The other episodes that aired uh, featured tracked music from previous episodes. Um, interestingly, there was an episode called Greetings from Earth, which was a two-hour episode. It was aired as, as a two-hour sort of telemovie, which again was ABC's original plan. But it's essentially a two-part episode, just you know, aired together. Um, it's unfortunate that Phillips didn't get to write any original music for it. Um, but the uh, the music he did write for the other two episodes is great. Uh, murder on the Rising Star is more of a low-key suspense. Uh, again, it's it's sort of a murder mystery episode. But then the finale, The Hand of God, uh, features some new battle music, um, and also it opens and closes with this really swelling, optimistic uh, theme, which I really like a lot. Uh, so the characters, uh, Apollo, Starbuck, Sheba, and Cassiopeia, go into this observatory on the Galactica. So they're sort of staring out of the stars, and there's a mysterious signal that they receive from deep space. Um, and this uh, cue called the Dome, um, it opens, it has this swelling, optimistic, uh, hopeful opening in this theme. I really like a lot. I think it kind of ends the, the show on, on this nice, hopeful note that they will actually complete their quest and find Earth. But it also has a hint of mystery towards the end. Um, so you'll hear that in this cue uh, from the episode, the finale episode, The Hand of God. Uh, this is a cue called the Dome. For many years, the only music available from the show was the album of the original pilot, um, which, uh, like I said, won a, a Grammy. Um, and Stu Phillips even recorded a new version of the score um, back in 1998 with the Royal Scottish Orchestra. It's a great recording, um, but uh, it was really awesome that the label Entrotter Records uh, put out all the music from the series recently in a four-volume set that I absolutely am grateful to have. Um, I believe it's sold out on their website, but uh, if you're interested, you should be able to find copies of it on the secondary market. But for me as a fan, a longtime fan of the show, I, I was just overjoyed to have all of the rest of the music for Gun on Ice Planet Zero and War of the Gods, and just to discover more of these you know, new melodies that he had done for the show past the pilot. And also there's a lot of uh, really cool, funky source music that he did. Um, but I wanted to, um, close out with a, a quote that, uh, from that same interview from that magazine in 1988, uh, when, uh, Phillips was interviewed about this. And I just wanted to close with a, a quote that he said about, um, scoring the show. He had described it as a real high point, And I agree with him in his career, you know, because he was able to provide such great music. Um, he had said, uh, a space adventure like this is a composer's delight. It's the kind of thing that opens you up because you're almost on ground where you can justify anything you do. 
it's the big career thing that you do that you love. The opportunity to do something like Lawrence of Arabia. Adventure stories like that are generally the best thing for a legitimate composer to do. So I agree. I, th I think this was um, a superb highlight. You know, not that he didn't write great music for other shows, um, you know, like Buck Rogers and uh, Knight Rider and such. But um, I think Battlestar Galactica, just even one season, you know, he provided uh, this rich musical tapestry that when listened to, all, you know, on its own, it, it forms this really wonderful, uh, large symphonic work uh, that references, you know, itself and, and uh, weaves in such uh, winning melodies and motifs. And uh, I think it's worth revisiting uh, over and over again. In the next segment of this episode, I talked to my friend Mike Hagen about the TV music that got him into being a, a fan, and also his experiences in general being a soundtrack collector. Thanks for joining me, Mike. Sure, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so talk a little bit about, uh, you know, like one of the main topics I had you here was to, like, what got you into movie and TV music as a fan? Like, was, can you pinpoint where it started? When I was young, and I can't remember exactly how old, but let's just say eight years old or something, my uncle gave me a tape recorder for Christmas or my birthday, and I started to tape uh, TV shows off the television. Like, I'd hold the microphone up in front of the TV, mm -hmm. and I would try to record, like, the main titles to things that I liked, or um, in, in the case of Star Trek, the original series, the entire episode. Like, I, I recorded all 79 episodes of Star Trek probably over a few years Wow! and had them on 45 minute cassette tapes or 90 minute cassette tapes 45 minutes each side and uh, by that point Star Trek had been edited by about five minutes for extra commercial so, so it fit, fit precisely on one side of a 90 minute tape so when was that how long ago that was, was that? probably by that was probably 76 77 I was okay. doing that and I guess by then I was like uh, 12 or 13 years old. So you were recording the episodes as a fan, and then as a fan, you're starting to Yeah, find just re-listening the to them over, the, you know, once you're re-listening to Star Trek, I, first of all, I realized it was kind of written like a radio drama in the sense that, and I read this about radio dramas, I noticed on the classic Star Trek, the characters would repeat things like three times. And <laughs> I really noticed it on the audio cassettes. They'd, they'd say... Um, something up you know was happening and they'd re somebody else would repeat it back and then a third person would be like you mean like this and it, all of a sudden like that and that was a radio style i heard where i had read about what an interesting observation yeah. yeah that if you take away one element of that show the visual aspect to have you focus on just the audio and the dialogue yeah it would be like you know in a soap opera if you watch old soap operas like dark shadows which is one that i'm very much into that vampire soap opera oh the yeah 60s. the british one yeah i think it's american oh, oh is it oh okay it is. I but it was um you know somebody be like i just found out somebody was murdered murdered yes murdered you know like <laughs> they'd say it three times like just to make sure and i noticed i mean star trek wasn't as bad as a soap but it was like that and right anyway that's not but i also started noticing the music as i kept listening to those cassette tapes the music started really getting into my head
what I find interesting about you, you know, you have a very, you have a varied background because you also uh, lived in New York and you did improv. Yeah, I did grow up in well. New York City. I was born in Manhattan, but mostly grew up in Staten Island. And um, and then like later on, yeah, I got involved in like I went to acting school. I took acting classes at HB Studios, and then much later I went to uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade to mm-hmm. study improv, and I performed at that theater for a while, um, for a couple of years, and I did. Uh, I did extra work on Saturday Night Live for, which three, is, for three seasons, which was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I, I was hoping you mentioned that because I find that such an interesting <laughs> anecdote, you know, uh, to be able to have that in your in your pocket. Yeah, I did that from 2003 to 2006, and that was cool. Like, you know, you would just, like, they'd call you on Thursday and see if, ask if you were available. And yes, of course, I'm available. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and on Friday, you'd go and rehearse the sketch for, like, uh, three or four hours. What's, that's the block you'd be there in. What would, what's, what would be your favorite story from working on Saturday Night Live uh, probably, during those three There's years? two, probably. I was an extra in an episode from 2004 that Megan Mullally was the host of. Mm-hmm. She's from um, Will, and, Will Grace. and Grace. yeah. And they did a Wizard of Oz sketch, and I got to be a munchkin in that sketch. And The Wizard of Oz is one of my favorite movies as a kid. So huh. it was sort of like, even though it was just a sketch of it, it was like, well, I'm in it. <laughs> I'm dressed like a munchkin, and uh, I got, like, for some bizarre reason, I got, I had a really fun costume, and I got, like, this sort of weird close-up behind uh, Seth Meyers, which was odd. Like, oh, wow. I, like, or I had this extended, like, FaceTime. That's uh, amazing. Non-talking extra in the background. And then... Another sketch that I really enjoyed was um, uh, that Siegfried and Roy. Um, if you, uh, it was about Siegfried and Roy, and mm-hmm. they had a big accident with their tiger once uh, back in the early aughts. And I think this was like 2004 or five. And the sketch was that we were in the audience of watching Siegfried and Roy, and we were supposed to be like applauding and laughing, and then suddenly our expressions changed to horror, and they dump a bucket of blood on all of us, <laughs> like supposedly from the stage. And, it was fun because it was like kind of almost a special effect. It was interesting, and you know they gave us the clothes to wear that day, and they let us like clean up, of course, afterwards. Okay. But uh, but that was just kind of a weird sketch. It was kind of fun to be in, um, and it was good. And I did it for like three years, and then after three years, the um, casting director left, and a new casting director took over, and he wanted everybody to uh, reapply. And I was like, I decided like, well, I'm, I've done it. I'm satisfied. Actually, I kind of want my Saturdays back because you have to be there for 12 hours. You have oh, to get there at noon right. and you're there until 1 a.m. So wow. 13 hours. And then you got to go back home on the subway, which was fine. But, but uh, still so I got home at like two. Uh, anyway, uh, so that was it. I kind of just decided that ah, I'm satisfied with that experience. Huh. <laughs> but it's great. I yeah. Mean, yeah. It's to have under your belt. Yeah. I'm totally happy just being as a kid, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live as a cast member. You know, in my mind, I was like, well, I like Dan Aykroyd. I want to do what he's doing. <laughs> so being an extra is not the same, but it was nice. It was definitely awesome to be there and watch them do it and see how the show is put together. You're a cog in the machine. I mean, yeah. And, you know, and you even, like you said, got FaceTime on yeah, it was, camera. Yeah, it was definitely fun to have friends call me up on Monday and be like, I saw you on TV, man. <laughs> so I can't deny that. So that's a thrill. That's definitely a thrill. Um, now, one of the, so one of the topics I know that, that uh, you had wanted to talk about here was just, you know, was kind of focused on some of the TV music. And oh, yeah. There's there particular <laughs> themes that you said really clicked with you. Yeah, I watched a lot of TV as a kid growing up, like I'm sure a lot of us did, or um, and I really, like, noticed things like... Um, of course, lots of songs, you know, like Gilligan's Island or the Brady Bunch or those Sherwood Schwartz. Uh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Theme yeah, yeah. songs with like lots of catchy lyrics. Like, of course, those were with me. But also another 
TV show that was rerun a lot in the 70s was Lost in Space. Oh, and yeah. that music had a lot of John Williams music, although I didn't know it was him or I didn't connect at the time, but I remember really noticing the Lost in Space music a lot. Yeah, that was one where as, as when I started, you know, when they were rerunning it a lot in the early 80s, I remember like I, would, I yeah, started like, collecting and then it was like, oh, that's a John Williams theme. And he did two themes and then, you know, they... Right, I, yeah, I like both themes, although I like the third season theme the best. It's the second one that he did. Yeah. And that's a great one. whatever thing they re, they track the music a lot like one of the great things about tv in the 60s and early 70s great things in terms of like hearing it over and over again was that they would re- use the same music over and over again like yeah in different episodes it's something that doesn't so happen now doesn't happen anymore. um but back then with star trek and lost in star space trek and those they, they would record these uh the scores like for only you know half the episode let's say just average and then just reuse those right, cues like over the, and over like the vulcan fight music by uh, Gerald Freed for, yep. a, for a muck time but that was like for every fight scene after that episode you know so <laughs> to the point that everybody knows everybody it, knows know, that, that it gets parodied in, in pop culture also some of the other music he wrote for Friday's Child or uh, was tracked or Cat's Paw like, mm-hmm. that music was just tracked to every action scene all throughout the second season of Star yeah. Trek so you just heard, heard it a lot it becomes yeah tattooed on your brain yeah You brought an example today. You brought an, an, an album. Oh a, yeah, a, a record, um, a CD that you wanted to that had a number of uh, cues, specific. Yeah. yeah, going back to like the early seventies, uh, a lot of British shows were like um, being syndicated in the United States or being broadcast in the United States in the late sixties. Like say like The Saint with Roger Moore mm-hmm. or Secret Agent with Patrick McGowan. Uh-huh. It was called Danger Man in England. Okay, um, and uh, The Persuaders was another. It's a Tony Curtis, Roger Moore series. So these were just being rerun constantly. Or the Avengers. Uh, right. With uh, Diana Rigg and Patrick McGee. Yeah. Patrick McNee. 
Um, but they were just being rerun all the time in the 70s on a local station in New York. And so I just watched like The Saint and Secret Agent and The Avengers and The Persuaders and UFO, uh, Jerry Anderson. I've uh, heard of that. and I don't, That's got I, another great theme. Okay. Um, and... Um, so you had I because I was not exposed as much to those for some, whatever reason they were not right. Local. So, so like that I didn't know. So yeah. say Secret Agent, which Secret Agent is also famous for its American song, Secret Agent Man. Oh well, I know that one. Okay. Right, that yeah. was written for the American version. That's oh. not on the English version at all. Okay, like every episode would start with this Edwin Astley composition called High Wire. Huh. And so it's, so it's harpsichord driven. Okay. It's like I think harpsichords were really big in the '60s, thanks yeah. to. Um, Probably thanks to Tom Jones, is what I gathered. Oh. Because Tom Jones, heavy harpsichord score, the film Tom Jones. Oh, okay. With, with, uh, Albert, with Albert Finney. <laughs> not, not the singer. Not the Tom singer. Jones. Not the singer. <laughs> um, and that won an Oscar. And that had lots of harpsichord There were a lot of pop bands so, that were using harpsichord. Yeah, at the time. I think it became like in fashion. Yeah. And this uh, high wire piece uh, is like one minute long, and it's like um, pop, I guess you'd call it pop baroque almost or baroque pop I think oh i that's, love that i think that's a genre almost like oh, wow. i think it, it's like the beatles do it and like all you need is love mm-hmm. there's like rock but there's or there's also an orchestra or jesus christ superstar the musical mm-hmm. like that's like a call it a rock opera mm-hmm. it's like almost the same thing where there's like the london symphony orchestra and a rock band mm-hmm. like going together yeah and that's a sound that i really latched onto as a kid and i still like it today the mm-hmm. kind of like rock pop baroque as they call it, sound. <laughs> and, and so, um, the, and so then these, yeah. So these really stuck with me. Um, and High Wire by Edwin Astley for Secret Agent Man is uh, one of the things that I recorded with a tape recorder, and it's always like it's always stayed with me. It's one minute long, but it's a strong piece that I I always go back to listen to. record store in Manhattan called Footlight Records. Oh, yeah, I Thanks visited there, yeah. To a friend of mine. I had a friend who was heavily into like Broadway cast recordings and they had a lot of those too. Mm-hmm. And he went there once and he said, you got to go to the store. They have some film soundtracks too, bro. And I was like, all right, I'll check it out. And holy crap. Yeah. Like that became like one of the places I just went all the time. I have to give a shout out to my friend Todd Smith for uh, introducing me to that record <laughs> store when I visited him. He lived in oh, Jersey and yeah. traveled to New York. And so, yeah, they didn't. Ha- they had a lot of different albums than you could get at the Staten Island Strip Mall <laughs> where, uh, you know, you could just get the latest albums. Um, yeah. But I would go to Footlight Records and I found, like, the album of Hawaii Five-0 soundtrack. Oh, the Morton Stevens. Yeah, the Morton Stevens oh, album. Oh, yeah. And uh, Dark Shadows uh, released a soundtrack album in 1969, and they had that. And uh-huh. they were all, like, pretty normally priced. They weren't, at least in the late 70s, they weren't, like, 
crazy prices or anything. So then at what point did you feel like you turned into a collector? And suppose like, well, I saw this TV show or I saw this movie. At what point did you sort of be like, I'm going to try to start getting everything by composer X? Oh, yeah. Well, even whether or not I saw the movie, I'm just going to start, you know, like. Probably after like 79, 80 when, like, I mean, I was lucky because I was a teenager through the 70s and early 80s. So that's when like all these awesome movies are coming out, like Star Wars and Close Encounters and mm -hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. and even movies that weren't awesome that I liked, like Black Hole and yeah. Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. Um, I think it was like around then, like I just started, like Jerry Goldsmith seemed to be composing. Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, and John Barry just seemed to be doing every movie that was coming out. <laughs> and, and doing them all spectacularly well. Oh yeah, I mean, I didn't even, I haven't even mentioned James Bond, but like that was another one where I would watch these James Bond movies oh, on yeah. the ABC Sunday night movie. Yeah. And, um, and so I really like, who doesn't like the James Bond theme? So as oh, soon I as I bought, yeah. like I told you, I bought. Live, I guess I did. I bought Live and Let Die. Yeah. And then I bought like Man with a Golden Gun, and then I bought The Spy Who Loved Me, which was like this isn't like the others. <laughs> but I, I liked it. I liked it. Uh, a big turning point is I found this radio station in New York called WBAI, and mm. they uh, it's like a like an NPR station, uh -huh. National Public Radio. Uh -huh. um, and anyway, they had a soundtrack show on oh. on Sunday mornings at five a.m. Oh wow! But I was sixteen, and I was easy. I would just stay up. <laughs> so this was eighty, eighty, eighty-one. Wow! And there was a guy, his, the host. Now I think he isn't no longer with us. His name was Paul Wonder. I mean, I don't know him, but I I read about him, and he was the host of this show called Soundtrack. Mm -hmm. It was on WBAI. It was on at five a.m. in the morning, from five a.m. to like eight a.m. And I didn't hear every single episode, but I. But if I was up all night, and I was, sometimes I'd make a point to like listen to this show, and he'd mm -hmm. play things all across the board, and things I'd never heard of, and things or things I found out about. Like there was a movie from 1980 or 81 called The Final Countdown mm -hmm. about this uh, aircraft carrier that went back in time. I yeah, I stop. know of it. And the scores by John Scott, I think is yeah, like John Scott. And I heard yeah. that, and I was like, holy cow, this is amazing. Like, yeah, and I never got the soundtrack until like i found a cd of it like yeah de I decades later i didn't even know if there was a soundtrack that's amazing that he had a radio show when there were so few i wouldn't say so few but there weren't as many i mean it was more often that a movie didn't have the soundtrack than it did yeah i know especially then but that's probably why it was on at 5 a.m but <laughs> um, but yeah so for example he'd play the final countdown soundtrack and i heard that and i was like wow like that's yeah. great yeah um or he played north by northwest and the movie i wasn't familiar with yet at the time now mm -hmm. i practically have it memorized right <laughs> but uh you know i hadn't seen it yet because i was a kid and i was like damn that's great <laughs> so that helped a lot like and yeah. then um in 1984 i started working at tower records in new york city oh and, okay um, yeah i went in there looking for a job and i was like uh yeah i like soundtracks and the guy was like well we need someone on the rock floor and i was like <laughs> all right so i worked on the rock floor as they call it and one day jimmy page walks in the guitarist from Led Zeppelin oh right and um my boss is running around crazy he's like oh my god that's Jimmy Page Jimmy Page is in the store and I he looked at me and I said I'm not I don't know who that is and he's like what <laughs> you work on the rock floor and you don't know who Jimmy Page is and I was like I told you soundtracks remember <laughs> so finally because of not because of but they transferred me up to the Lincoln Center store because there was an opening in soundtracks that's so hilarious and I got to work in the soundtrack department at the Lincoln Center Tower Records, which we shared with the classical department, 
So we had to share the turntable of the music that we played. So they'd play a classical record, mm -hmm. and we'd play a soundtrack album. And every time I'd play a soundtrack album, a classical guy would come over and be like, do you have to play that? <laughs> and I'm like, it's Beverly Hills Cop. The movie just came out. Yes, I have to play it. <laughs> it's Harold Faltermeyer. Everyone a, knows this now. But then he was another guy. Like, he'd play, like, John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith, and they'd be like, you know what that sounds like, right? It doesn't, you know, he's ripping that off from so-and-so. And I'm like, whatever, bro. Like, there, why yeah. you gotta be like that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everyone's influenced by everybody. I, I mean, know, that, I that's know. the thing that's interesting. I'm like, yeah, you know, but you could also, it's like there are classical examples. This is when I started taking classical, you know, um, classes in college. You, I would learn about the composers that would be like, that would take something that Handel did and then, or, or, you know, Mozart would even take something that somebody else did and he's like, well, I'm going to do my own version of this, you know. And there's one thing to just, there's something to be said about taking a sound, you know, like Goldsmith wasn't really like taking like, uh, you know, a Stravinsky piece and passing it off as right, his own. Right, it was no. more about like, well, yeah, I mean, he, he's borrowing the language of yeah, it. Yeah, like John Williams and Korngold for Star Wars. Like, I mean, he's yeah. kind of on purpose doing it. He's not trying to say... And it's dictated a lot by the director. I mean, yeah. that's the other thing that it's like, you know, right. it's like, the, the, I think those are discussions with, with sometimes where people be like, well, you know, it sounds like, it's like, well, it, you know, it's not like the music is composed in a vacuum. It's not right. like it's they're like, like, we're going to send this movie to John Williams and hopefully he'll get it back to it's us It's a in collaboration, six weeks. so you got back yeah. and forth. And the director is going to say, I need it to sound like this, I need it to sound like that. Right, or he'll temp track it with Mars, the bringer of war, and then tell yeah, them, then he then says, it's like, kind of make it like this, okay? Yeah, like, I mean, you're a hired the boss gun. tells you to do that. That's what you're going to do. Yeah, and I think that's sometimes the misconception about it, yeah. you know, um, especially because, I, I mean, I would have those conversations. One of my, you know, as far as like those, I, I would try to talk about it in class, and I had a professor who said he knew all of film music because he heard Berlioz. And because he knew um, what Berlioz sounded like, he didn't he need to listen. He didn't to need to listen to any. And I'm like, well, that's really myopic. Yeah, I mean, wow. really, does does Enter the Dragon sound like Berlioz? Right. No. no. I mean, it's just sort of like, come on. One good anecdote yeah. about Tower Records, is other than one, Jimmy Page, uh, other than Jimmy Page, is that <laughs> when I was working at the Lincoln Center store in the soundtrack department, you know, like I said, we would play records, uh, and whenever I played any John Barry album, specifically, actually, somewhere in time or out of Africa. I sold those albums. People would always come up and be like, what's this? What's playing right now? I'd be like, oh, it's out of Africa. Oh, I want it. I want it. Or somewhere in time. Somewhere in time, every time I played it, I sold a copy. That is it so nuts. More than anybody else. So it's basically just like the scene in High Fidelity, uh, the John Cusack <laughs> movie, where he's he tells the guy, I'm now going to sell, what is it, like 10 copies of... You know, I forget now. I'm like blanking on the band name, but he's like, and he plays his record, and everyone's like, oh yeah. yeah. That <laughs> yeah John is... Barry was the one that everybody like, would they stop what they were doing and yep. pick up their head and listen and be like, what's this playing?
So how uh, have you changed as a fan over the years uh, with the collecting and everything? In terms of new music, you know, like I loved uh, the Lord of the Rings scores. Like mm -hmm. I love the movies and I love the scores. That was like as good as anything, as good as like the Star Wars days, Star Absolutely. Wars, Empire Jedi. Yeah. Um, so I really like those. I only got like the first three albums of the Harry Potter scores. I didn't keep collecting. Oh, really? That. Yeah. Because um, I sort of fell out of the movies, too. I was just busy. That was like, well, I was just busy a lot. And mm -hmm. I wasn't going to the movies as much anymore. And okay. I wasn't listening. And, um, but after that, but something, sometime in the aughts, like something happened with movie music, like modern movie music. Like I remember I bought this soundtrack uh, to Spider-Man by Danny Elfman mm -hmm. and I put that on and I was like wow my, my ear's not quite picking up any like strong superhero theme in this I mean huh. it's in there mm -hmm. but it's kind of hiding mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> it's not like in your face like Superman or something yeah. like that it's um, a little more elusive yeah but once a couple of listens then you can get it yeah but then I just kind of noticed that movie um, I don't know like I think we all know this like just it's not as themey yeah. as it used to be they kind of do these long line short themes that are not as catchy or that is in your face and um that's fine it's a style i understand that it's, you know. it's but it's unfortunate yeah i mean it's unfortunate for music lovers yeah <laughs> <laughs> but we, yeah uh, those of us with that you know focus but that's you know i gotta say i only really notice it like on the music sense like i've gone to movies and i'm not sitting in a theater being like damn this movie sucks there's no theme like <laughs> it usually it usually works in terms of the movie yeah, yeah, it's just unfortunate. Yeah, there's there's less, you know, and and plus you get to a point where, you know, you're like, I've, I'm still enjoying what I've got. Yeah, definitely, and there's still some new stuff coming out that I really enjoy. Like I really like Michael J. Kino's Doctor Strange. Oh, album. I love that. That's like one of my current favorites. That and had a theme that was absolutely got embedded in my in my brain. And the theme, the I thought that theme to Iron Man three was pretty strong. Fantastic. That's a great one. One of my and favorite Brian I Tyler. I love the themes. yeah, and I even love the Can You Dig It? The sort of absolutely album, like at the end, the last. I think it's title. one of my favorite tracks. That's one of my favorite tracks. I listen yep. to it a lot. There's still like stuff new that I get excited about and like you know happy to get. I, yeah. I just kind of glossed over like the last 15 years of movie <laughs> music, but I know we're running out of time. No, no, it's fine. I, I I just find it interesting to talk to you know other fans you know that we kind of talk you know just um, off the record you know and, and not that this is yeah, it, but um, it's it's sort of like you know um, I often get the question from friends and, and you know in larger groups where they're they're not clicking and they'll usually say oh what do you what have you heard recently and I'm like oh. Jeez. Um, but I'll be like, well, there was a, an album. There was like, the, I just got, uh, you know, something from like a 70s movie. 
and they'll be like, <laughs> yes. well, yeah, but what was what's new, like what new movie? And I'm like, ah, oh, frick. <laughs> I know. I think I posted something on Facebook once about getting the soundtrack to Chain Reaction. And oh, one yeah. of my friends was like, did you have that privately pressed for yourself? Because who, <laughs> how the hell do you get that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's but there are gems. And thank goodness for Michael G. Kino and Brian Tyler and Alexander Desplat. And it's like they, there are some real, you know, talented guys out there that uh, I, I think, you know, are still Yeah, there's writing lots great. of great stuff. And yeah. I, yeah, just because they're being instructed to not write anything too catchy doesn't mean they're not talented. <laughs> no, not at all. And every now and then there will be a, a real winner. I, I think the, the, the one that I now when I get asked that question, I'm like Thor Ragnarok. Oh, right. That's like, great, too. That was one of my favorite that's scores my, from last uh, year. That's a great one. I, I love that. I think this happens to fans of any genre rock pop country yeah because there's going to be a point where like even as a as a fan of pop music you're like well i'm not really liking the current pop bands that's gonna happen yeah i mean i definitely i think like my foundational sound that i enjoy listening to whether it's soundtracks or pop or rock music is like 65 to 75 okay and that's like from that's like when i was hearing music as a really young kid and that's it, a, it's making of, an imprint in wet cement and then it yeah so it hardens and I, then that's you. I tend to like music from that those years. I mean, I like disco too. That's like a little bit later. Um, no shame. No, sh- I'm not. Gonna, I, I'm, not I'm judging. I'm yeah, not, uh, yeah. <laughs> I listen to Saturday Night Fever soundtrack and everything. Um, or well, I appreciate you know you sharing you know this uh, on on my podcast. So I, sure, I, you know, thank, I'm really happy thanks. that we got to schedule this. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. I like I said when I started, I kind of was nervous. I was like, when am I? I don't even know how to do this. Uh, but, <laughs> but I think it just it's great to hear you know from you know fellow fans, and that's one of the things I like about the show is being able to talk about our love for the music, and then like what got you into it, what keeps you going, and one right. of those highlights. So definitely, thank you. I, I yeah, thanks very it much. Started, I guess it started liking the show, and then it segued into liking the music for its own sake yeah definitely that that happens for a lot of us so (laughs) but thanks again mike thank you so this wraps up my conversation with friend and fellow fan mike hagan along with my overview into the music of the 1978 television series battlestar galactica I'd like to, again, thank Mike for participating and sharing his background, his insights, and stories from being a soundtrack fan, specifically as it pertained to TV music. And, of course, I want to thank everyone for listening today. As always, I hope you found it both entertaining and informative. I want to make one correction in that I incorrectly labeled the Battlestar Galactica pilot airing as a three-part miniseries, when in fact it aired as a three-hour movie in its original telecast. In fact, uh, its initial broadcast was famously interrupted for an hour due to the signing of the peace accord between Egypt and Israel. Uh, Music in today's episode was from the following, uh, Battlestar Galactica by Stu Phillips, uh, Star Trek, the original series, uh, specifically music by Gerald Freed for the uh, episodes Friday's Child and Mock Time, Lost in Space, the season three main title by John Williams, Danger Man by Edwin Astley, Out of Africa by John Barry, Iron Man 3 by Brian Tyler, and The Persuaders by John Barry. If you'd like to send any comments or questions to the show, you can email me at podcast at gmail.com, find the blog at escortasettle.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash escortasettle, and on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's the number two, score2settlepod. If you listen to the show uh, via iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening. 